Well, good morning. Let's turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 5. We've been uh, working our way through selected Proverbs over the course of the summer, looking at different topics. Solomon has a lot to say, a lot of wisdom about a lot of different topics. And today, as, um, as Jim mentioned, we're looking at the topic of sexuality. Is it kind of warm in here? I'm kind of warm. I don't know. So um, uh, anyhow, let's start with uh, chapter 5, verse 1. And this is Solomon talking to, to his son. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight, that you may gain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not turn aside from what I say. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give her your best strength to others. And your years to one who is cruel, lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline, how my heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. So kind of tough stuff, heavy stuff, um, you know, and, and it's a topic that pastors don't always get excited about speaking about, but it's in God's word. And we would be remiss if we didn't look at this topic. Two and a half chapters of Proverbs is on this topic of, of sexuality and, 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 and wisdom on, on our sexuality. And, and so today uh, I want to begin with the comment that we all fall short. We all have sinned in word or thought or deed in the past or the present. Uh, and we will in the future. And so I want to begin with a, a note of humility that we all have fallen short and we all rely upon God's grace and his mercy. So this is not a comprehensive talk, but we're going to look at the, this, this, these verses and a few others from Proverbs 5 and other passages today. Now, sexuality is a special gift from God. It's a special creation of God. And it might be helpful to think of it as a metaphor like a fire. A fire within the proper bounds, warms, brings intimacy, delight, a community, life. But outside its proper bounds, it can bring destruction and, and, and leave scars. I just got back from Colorado a, a few days ago where I was out hiking with a, and communing with a few pastor friends. And uh, it reminded me, we drove by an area uh, that I'd been in before where there was a fire a number of years ago. And it's been interesting, over the years I've gone back a few times to this area, and you can see where the devastation has gone through, the scars and some of the, the stumps that are still there. But you also see signs of, of, of new life and growth and beauty. And uh, I, I want to begin with this note of that no matter what has happened in our life in the past in this area, no matter the scars or the devastation or destruction, that God can bring new growth and restoration and, and new life over time as we submit to him. Now, so human sexuality is so much more than just the, the propagation of the species. One sociologist po pointed out that human beings are the only ones who procreate face to face. 
Because for us, it's more than just biology. There's something happening soul to soul in the act of sexuality. And we go back to the beginning in Genesis. It might be helpful for us to think about this, that when God designed human sexuality, he did so to teach us about himself and what his love is like. Because in sex, the Bible tells us, the two become one. One person loses themselves, in a sense, in the other. There's a vulnerability and a oneness and an intimacy that's not, that's not uh, seen in other, other relationships. The two, though separate and distinct, become mysteriously one, which is like the Trinity, says Paul. Different persons, but the same essence. Now, some of us listening today um, might be thinking, well, this is no big deal. But the scripture tells us that it is a big deal. For some of us, pornography is destroying our soul. And I'm talking to both men and women here. For others, our craving for romance and sex is so out of balance that we become obsessed with getting married or getting into a different marriage and that idolatry is ruining our lives. And so I'm asking God to speak into our lives this morning, wherever our struggle might be in this area, that we give ourselves completely to him and find healing and wholeness and blessing. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, he's a pastor in, uh, in New York City, man, in downtown Manhattan. He just retired from his church, but great author and preacher. says that our culture both undervalues and overvalues sex. Let's first look at how we undervalue sex. Our society wants to believe sex is just physical. It's like food. When you're hungry, you eat. Or it's like a sport. You find something you enjoy... You figure out what position you're good at, and then you play. In this view of sex, the really only important questions are, what do I enjoy, and what satisfies me? And this idea of strict rules about sex might seem restrictive, draconian, or Victorian. You know, when somebody comes to me and says, Pastor, I have something to tell you I've never told anybody else before, it's almost always sexual. Why so often are our greatest regrets in this area? Everything in our experience screams out that that sex is not just physical, that there's something much greater at work. Solomon says this in Proverbs 5, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Now, a cistern is an image of female sexuality. You went into a cistern to get water. And then he continues, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? It's a metaphor for male sexuality. And then he says, let them, these treasures, these sexual gifts, be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. I think I saw some guys really pay attention to that one. So. And you might not realize how countercultural this passage is. In ancient cultures at the time, there were only two reasons that you would get married. Economics, you know, you would marry strategically into another family to provide for your, you know, yourself, uh, become wealthier, become more secure, and so on. Or fertility, you wanted to pass your line on so that after you were gone, your name would continue. But here we have Solomon talking about sexuality in terms of finding erotic delight 
in a partner that you've given yourself to for life. In Proverbs 2, he calls a wife the companion of your youth. The word in Hebrew, uh, halop, means something like a, like a soulmate, like kindred spirits, a soulmate. That was much different than how Solomon's culture saw sex. His culture saw sex as just a function, a biological function, or as a satisfaction of an appetite. Let me take you to another passage where Proverbs talks about this again. Proverbs 30. Three things are too wonderful for me. Four I do not understand. This is called a three-four poem in Hebrew literature, where you would um, say three things are awesome, but the fourth one, it, it, it surpasses them all, blows me away. So he says, three things are too wonderful for me. And the three things are the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, and the way of a ship on the high seas. So in other words, the air is mysterious and invisible, but you see this eagle gliding high above. It's, it's incredible to look at. How does that happen? How does that work? The snake has no legs, but it, it slithers across a rock. How does it do that? A ship weighing thousands of pounds sails effortlessly, it seems, across the sea. Someone says, these things seem almost magical and, and wonderful, but there is something even more wonderful. He says, the way of a man with a maiden. Countless songs and poems have been written about the, the magical mystery and, and wonder of, of love. But then the next image in verse 20 is deliberately jarring from Solomon. But this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now, just a word of correction here. This is not gender specific. This applies to both male and female, okay? But this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. So by contrast, you have this, this person for whom sex is like, you know, just sloppy eating. I have an appetite. I eat. After I'm done, I wipe my mouth, get rid of the traces. That's it. Just a snack. Just biology. No deep mystery here. But that totally misses the, the incredible wonder that God has built into this, this act of sex. In sex, the two become one. And that oneness, we're told, is to be achieved where everything else in our lives becomes one too. Our finances, our families, our futures, our hopes, our dreams, our struggles. The two become one. Sex outside of marriage separates the physical oneness from the oneness of everything else. You're saying to the person, I don't really yet want all of you, just this part of you for now. C.S. Lewis had a great analogy for this. He said, it's like the guy who wants to have sex with a girl without marrying her feels about the girl the way she feels, the bulimic feels about food. The bulimic loves the taste of food. It brings pleasure and comfort. But she doesn't want to carry around the calories and the fat of the food in her body, so she tastes it. She draws pleasure from it, but then she vomits it back out. C.S. Lewis says, that's what the guy is doing. He's saying, I love the taste of you, but I don't want all of you yet. So we'll have sex, but I won't fully unite myself to you. Listen to some folks who don't have the Christian perspective on this. Woody Allen says this. Sex without love is an empty experience. But as empty experiences go, it's one of the best. Katy Perry, the singer, says this. I don't even know your name. It doesn't matter. These are song lyrics. You're my experimental game, just human nature. 
because we are human and not just animals, it's more than just nature. And it's never just an experiment. There's a book called Hooked. It's not a Christian book. It's actually written by two, um, two scientists, two neurologists. And they did a study, a scientific study, showing what having multiple sexual partners does to your brain, especially when you're young. It actually rewires your brain, they say, in a way that makes genuine, lasting, selfless relationships much more difficult. Quote, The individual who goes from sex partner to sex partner is causing his or her brain to mold in such a way that eventually accepts that pattern as normal. The pattern of changing partners therefore damages their ability to bond in a committed relationship. I'll continue reading. The kind of attachment damage caused by repeated encounters is in many respects more devastating than unwanted pregnancies or STDs. Repeated encounters hinder our abilities to to form lifelong and satisfying relationships. And then I'm going to conclude with this quote. You can no more try out sex than you can try out birth. The very act of sex produces a new reality that cannot be undone. This is from two secular um, neurologists. It's in a book called How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children, Hooked. Now, again, I'd be remiss. I'm going to just do all this today and get her, get her done. I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the damage of, of pornography. I mean, looking at pornography, perhaps to an even greater extent, kills our capacity for lifelong and satisfying relationships. First, it causes us to start looking at the opposite sex as commodities. And I'm talking to men, but also this issue is increasingly plaguing women. When we gaze at pornography, we are looking at an image of a woman whose body we just want to use for a moment. And it trains our mind to see women a certain way, and that's how we start to relate to women. And so when we look at pictures of of women or an opposite sex person with no recognition they have a soul, our mind starts to see the real people in our life as sexual objects. And you might be saying, well, it's, not, it's harmless. There's, there's no victim in this. I can keep it separate. But that's where you're wrong. Looking at porn rewires our brain. Maybe it might be helpful to think of this. Uh, when they study the World War II and how the, the Germans got, you know, how could the average German just come alongside and be a part of these atrocities in Nazi Germany? And as I said, they say that many Germans got comfortable with committing these atrocities against Jewish people by hearing them talked about for years and years and years as less than, you know, subhuman, not like us. And so they became okay with the pain and suffering of Jews. They just started thinking of them in a, in a different and separate way. So, men, if you have pornography for the sake of your relationship with all future women, you need to get rid of it. Just like if you have a playlist with a song that refers to women as bitches or whores, it needs to be erased from your playlist. Because how we train our minds to think about the opposite sex is how we will begin to see them. The second thing pornography does is it destroys our own capacity for sexual fulfillment. We're cheating ourselves. Annie Stanley says that every time we look at porn, we rewire our soul to believe three things. A real body is not enough. Only one body isn't good enough. And our wife's body isn't good enough. No woman, no matter how beautiful, 
can live up to what we see in porn. Naomi Wolf, not a Christian, in fact, a super radical feminist, writes this. For most men, real naked women are just bad porn. They can't compete. Now, I've directed a lot of this issue towards men, but in our society, it, it, it's becoming just as much an issue for women. I mean, for example, the wild success of Fifty Shades of Grey, huge bestseller, wildly popular movie, is sort of soft porn for women made mainstream. And these things are not romantic. They are destroying us. Well, that's how we undervalue sex. Here is how we overvalue sex in our culture. Proverbs 11:22, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. Again, it can be it can apply to both genders. Now, this is Solomon at his finest. What's he saying? He's talking about the person who values beauty and, and, and sex over character when choosing a spouse. Now, of course, he's He's not saying that, you know, sexual attraction isn't important. Of course we are to be attracted to our spouse. He's not eliminating it from the equation. He's just saying that there's more than that, that character is the most important. And our culture overvalues sex and beauty, giving those things entirely too much weight in what makes for the good life. Many feel that physical beauty is is all that matters and all that gives a person value. A lot of people put way too much emphasis on physical looks when they're dating. They'll settle for a hog-like character if they get the gold ring of physical beauty. But it would serve us well if we remember this. Proverbs 31, remember the passage at the end, it describes the ideal woman. When Proverbs 31 describes the ideal woman, the woman who blesses you year after year, and your children rise and call her blessed, when it does talk about beauty... It does so disparagingly. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Beauty is good. Character is better. You know, I remember the first time I saw uh, the woman who became my wife, Nancy. Um, and I, I thought she was beautiful. I mean, she kind of took my breath away. Um, but over time, as I watched her, I, I saw her character in action. I saw her in worship. I saw her teach in Sunday school to little kids. I saw her pray. I saw how she treated other people. I I saw the things that she valued at work in her life. And that made her even more beautiful to me. And she's still beautiful, but I see a woman who over time has sacrificed her life and given her time to being an incredible mother and wife and to serving others in the home and at work and at the church. And that makes her more beautiful to me today than she was when I first met her. And I know that in the midst of tragedy that she'll be there for me. That she'll walk with me through pain and she'll walk with me when I have six chins at some point. Because I know she'll be there for me. She's a woman of character. So Solomon says beauty is good but character is better. Sadly, our society has sold many women a lie. That they think physical beauty is so important that they feel worthless without it. That they'll do anything to make themselves look beautiful. A lot of them will do destructive things to their bodies to try and look good. For example, anorexia and bulimia are often built on the assumption that your primary beauty and identity is established by your shape and your size. But did you know this? 
Eating disorders are three to five times higher among women of industrialized nations than they are among non-industrialized nations. And they are two times higher among college students within those nations than they are among women at large. Again, to quote or to refer to Tim Keller, he says that this means that the closer we get to the heart of Western civilization, the closer we get to the culture-forming womb, the more women are bombarded with the message that all that matters about you is your looks and your character is secondary. I mean, a lot of women get depressed as they age, men too. And when their physical beauty is gone, so is their identity and their happiness. Physical beauty is good, Solomon says. But a person who walks with God has a beauty that lasts forever. Another way we overvalue sex in our culture is we, we are convinced that the good life is impossible without romance and sex. And we're willing to give up anything to have that. There's the stereotype of a guy in his 50s who leaves his lifelong companion and his kids for a younger, sexier woman, even though it destroys his family and his finances. You know, I read an article one time where a guy listed out all the things that would happen if he committed adultery. Untold hurt to his spouse, the loss of respect and trust, damaged relationships with kids who may never understand why they were traded for a thrill, shame upon parents and family, shame and judgment upon the partner, disrepute and harm to the Christian witness, and most importantly, grief to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's just not worth it. Some people overvalue sex and that they feel that they cannot be happy if they're not married. Or if they are married, they want a better marriage, a different marriage. Or they find themselves envying other people's relationships and imagine how much better they'd be in a new situation if they were married to him or her. Beauty and sex are good, but they are not the most important things. Proverbs 6.23 says, For these commands are the way to life. In other words, Solomon is saying, walking in obedience, following and obeying God's commands in a relationship with God, that is where we find life, not in sex, in God. I mean, think about this. The most joyful, fulfilled, fully alive person who has ever lived was single, and died a virgin in his 30s. Don't we all want the joy and the fulfillment and the peace and the purpose that Jesus had? We find it only in a relationship of trust and faith and obedience, a relationship with Jesus. Now I'm going to tie this thing up. Uh, Again, I acknowledge this is heavy stuff. I've been poking around in a lot of private areas today. Perhaps you're feeling preached at or judged or guilty or shamed or trapped, irritated. But I want to end with this. God's grace is boundless. His love is beyond comprehension. His mercy never, ever runs dry. The Bible is full of people like you and me who fall short, who sin. And time and again, we see God offer forgiveness and new beginnings and hope. King David caught in adultery, In a murderous scheme, forgiven, cleansed, started again. Rahab, a prostitute, a pagan, given a chance at a new life. She took it. She began anew. Paul, persecuting the church, rejecting Christ, encountered the risen Christ. He was transformed, a new man. 
the woman caught in adultery in John 8, where Jesus says, let the one who has not committed sin cast the first stone. And after all the others had left, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go now. Leave your life of sin. I invite you to come to the grace of God. He knows our struggles, and he is more than willing to pour out his grace upon you, upon me, to wash us, to sanctify us, to justify us. Come to God, receive his grace, receive his forgiveness, and then go and live your life of sin. Leave your life of sin. My son, my daughter, Solomon says, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may gain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today we come into your presence and we acknowledge that we fall short in so many areas of our lives and the area of sexuality is no different. None of us are pure. None of us are perfect or righteous. We confess that we fall short in word, in deed, or in thought. We ask for your grace and your cleansing. Lord, we thank you that you created us um, in your image. We thank you that we have strong desires for intimacy and closeness and oneness. And one of the ways we can express that, Lord, is, is through, through, through our sexuality. So, Lord, help us to honor you with that. Help us to grow more and more like you, Lord Jesus. Strengthen the marriages in our church. Strengthen those who are single. Give us courage to, to walk closely with you. We rely upon your grace. We rely upon your love. We trust in your mercy. We pray this in your powerful name, Lord Jesus, the one who bore our sins on the cross. Amen.